This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Earlier this week, uh, Doug Ford was in town, and Doug Ford suggested or promised or whatever verb you want to use that uh, if Hamilton Council wants LRT, yeah, you can have the money for it, but if you don't want LRT, you still get the billion dollars. Well, that sent tongues a-wagging and people scratching their heads and saying, well, wait a second, wait a second, what are we going to do about this project? Uh, where is the commitment to LRT? Well, Fred Eisenberger, the mayor, Fred, uh, is, is still very adamant about this, of course. Some of the other councilors now seem to be having second thoughts about the project. And I'm going to talk with one of them now. Lloyd Ferguson is the city councilor for Ancaster. That's Ward 12, of course, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Lloyd, how are you this morning? I'm great, Bill. Just don't like the snow. Yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Uh, listen, let's let's get into the heart and soul of this thing right now. You were one of the early advocates for light rail transit. You were one of the, uh, the councillors that came into this studio a few years ago now after having toured a number of other cities and said, this is Hamilton's future, this is what we need to do. Why are you vacillating now? I'm not necessarily vacillating. I'm just uh, processing what um, Doug Ford said. Uh, I took some political heat. I had busted some political capital to support LRT. I was at the start the only councillor who the LRT did not go through their ward that came out in support of it. And I, I remember that. And the reason I did that was, you know, it does reform the city. I get that. But it comes with some consequences, too. But the main reason was, uh, unlike what's happened in, in previous decades in the city, I wasn't going to send a billion dollars back to the province to give it to Brampton or somebody else. That investment would create a lot of jobs and create a lot of economic uplift, and and uh, I wanted to make sure that we uh, didn't blow that investment, if you will. And and uh, so I don't know what I'm going to do now. I, I certainly it's a game changer. If in fact now I, I was reading his quote, he's going to give 1.3 billion. Well, 300 million of that was for a new, as I recall, a new uh, go station down at the east end of the city. I don't think he's backing up on that, so he may be doubling that money up. But there's a lot of more information that's required. But uh, the people of Ancaster, it, and I would tell them bluntly, this does virtually nothing for them, but it isn't going to go on their tax bill. And it may be a way to reform the downtown. So that's why I come on side and come on side early, early because I, I wasn't going to waste or lose that money being invested in our community. And I may still stay that way. I, I, I want to consult with my constituents. I want to take it to my community council. And, and others to get some feedback on the right way to go. But even as you said in your commentary today, is that there's still a lot of gates to go through. You have to, first of all, the conservatives have to uh, win the government. They have to win a majority government because if they don't get a majority, both the Liberals and the NDP have said they support it. So they wouldn't get their support, and they run the risk of bringing the House down if, in fact, uh, it's a minority government. And then the second part is... Um, you know, we have to go through a municipal election. It'll very clearly be a big issue if 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 it's real that we could have the billion dollars anyway. Oh, it's going to be the issue in this election. It'll be a big issue, no question about that. And uh, so I got to be very careful how I think this through because once again, uh, we could take some of that billion dollars and, and improve some of the road systems and maybe some of the transit systems in Ancaster. And I'm elected to represent the people of Ancaster. I, I think my track record would indicate. I also look out for the best interests of the entire city. But first and foremost, I have to listen to the people of Ancaster and what they say. And as I said earlier, I got a lot of pushback for taking, for supporting it. And, uh, and my comeback was always, it's not going to put one cent on your tax bill because it's the capital cost are 100% funded. 
And uh, so they, they, most people will come on side with me on that once I explain that to them. If some didn't believe it, that uh, we'll be 100% funded, but that's certainly the commitment we all have from Metrolinx. And, and then, uh, you know, there's also, nobody's touched on this yet, we've already invested $60 million and committed, apparently, up to $90 million in the project, and, uh, and that's wasteful And um, if, if we back up on it. So I want to think that through, too. So I have not changed my mind. I've just said this is a game-changer. This is something I need to process, and this is something I need to consult with my community on. By the way, I, I just want our, our listeners to understand that we're not holding you up as the spokesperson for the uh, the city council here, uh, because we put our, our feelers up to an awful lot of the councillors today, and you responded, and I give you credit for that. Others didn't bother to return phone calls. But I, I'm going to ask you a couple of things. First of all, I want to get a, logis- a logistical question that I, I want to get your comment on. You've been in politics a long time, Lloyd. You were in business a long time. Uh, so let's, and, and I know this is going to sound like I'm, you know, trying to parse words here, but you know as well as I do that the Premier did not say you get $1.3 billion, Hamilton. She said the province would fund the cost of the LRT to the extent of $1.3 billion. There was never a, a check, a lump sum of money that was guaranteed to the city of Hamilton. So to that end, I'm asking you, or I'm asking Doug Ford, and, and now through you, who, who's starting to wonder about this, where's the money going to come from? There, there isn't a $1.3 billion check sitting in the safe at Queen's Park for anybody. Well, you're asking the wrong guy. you got to ask Doug Ford. Well, then I'm asking you about how logistically... Uh, accurate is that for for somebody to say? I, uh, that tells me that I don't think Doug Ford understands how co- how government works. Well, how could a Metrolinx, who's one one that made the commitment to the city for the for the billion dollars for LRT and three hundred million for a new go station, how can that be switched over and be used for sewer and water and and uh, other infrastructure projects or sidewalks? And God knows we know the state of our roads after this winter. Uh, how can Metrolinx? That's not their responsibility. It's public transit. So. Bill, there are a ton of questions left. But, uh, you know, I was asked to respond to the comment by uh, a spectator columnist, and, and I, I spoke No, I, I get that. I get that. Well, let me ask you another question then, uh, because you're not the only counselor now that said, as well, we're, we're, we want to rethink this or have second thoughts. I'm, we want to process it. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, you use that. Okay, I, I can say you can insert any verb you want here. But there's some second-guessing going on at this stage right now. Uh is it because there's an election year and you're afraid of the ramifications of the pushback you're going to get at the doors? No, it's my job to represent the people of Ancaster. The people of Ancaster were very clear with me. Why are you supporting this? And but and the answer was because it's being 100% funded by the province. Not going to turn my back on that. You may be able to remember, Bill, when the province wanted to fund um, uh, an elevated train system in Hamilton. That was decades ago. Maybe you were too young. I remember. No, no, no. I remember the story. And, and, and the city turned it down, and they've been criticized for a long while for turning it down. I didn't want to go down that same road. But if if a, a member of an opposing party can commit the $1 billion anyway to something, something that may be different from the LRT, I think I have a duty to, to think about that. And uh, and I tend to do just that, and do it primarily by consultation with the people of Ancaster. So how are you going to do that? Well, I have a community council, which is a great sounding board. Uh, there's 14 members. I don't appoint them. They're appointed by uh, seniors groups, chambers of commerce, uh, youth. Uh, there's a whole variety of different people from you know agriculture, from various cross sections in our community, and and their boards, their respective boards, appoint them to this community council. I use them. Uh, not as much lately because we're running out of land to develop, but for rezoning applications, I'd run it by them. I'd have our 
planning staff do a presentation to them, and I'd have the applicant do a presentation and let them advise me and give me their thoughts on that. I would do the same with this, uh, give them that opportunity. If, in fact, it starts to grow into something that might happen. Um, I would also, I mean, I'm out in the community almost every day. Uh, you know, I get you know, sometimes surrounded when I walk into Tim Hortons, and I appreciate that because I'm getting feedback. If I stop into Fortino's on the way home, all the people stop and talk to me. That's how I get the feedback. And certainly once you get on the campaign trail, uh, you know, after Labor Day, that, that the same thing will continue to happen. And, and I can defend my original decision um, very well, uh, uh, I think. And I, my community has fed back to me that they understand why I did what I did. They don't necessarily agree with it, but they understand it. And so I will do the same thing if this comes to. But if, if he can't deliver this thing, I sure wish he hadn't stirred this up again because we've had enough things jump in front of us, and it's been a long, protracted, difficult debate, and we're going to have to start this all over again if, in fact, he feels that he can get to it. So I think we first got to, got to step back, uh, wait for the election to be held. Uh, I remember last time uh, Kathleen Wynne, I believe, was running as the third party during the polls, and then uh, two weeks, the last two weeks of a uh, campaign are when these things are generally decided. The, the tide shifted, and, and she walked back in with a majority. That could very well happen again. I'm not, I'm not uh, able to predict elections, but uh, I think that when I, when I was asked the question, uh, I answered from my heart that uh, you know I'd have to consult with my community and think us through again. I, I know, and you're going to do that. I understand the process on the community council aspect, but I mean, let's let's cut to the quick here, Lloyd. You know what you're going to hear. The, the majority of people in your area in Ancaster are are not going to be in favor of LRT. You, you know that. I mean, you've heard from enough of them already to know that. Well, yeah, particularly if I can use it somewhere else uh, to do something in Ancaster, because let's face it, the people of Ancaster are not going to drive their car down uh, to the west end of the city, park the car, and get on the LRT and come in. They're going to continue to drive downtown. And with the LRT tra- uh, tracks going in, for example, King Street will be down to you've one, sometimes two lanes uh, from five lanes. And, and so that's going to impact them on a negative way. Uh, but it was still the right thing to do to take that investment, in my view. And I, and you know, I invested some political capital and may take a hit for that. But if this game changer is happening, uh, once again, I'm repeating myself, but I have a duty to rethink that. So council is on record as supporting this project uh, and moving forward on that. And, and we saw some of the speeches, heartfelt speeches from some of the people that were on the fence on this issue. So I I, 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 is it fair to say that the support for LRT was not for LRT at all, but just because you wanted the billion dollars for some of us? So other, there, there was no dedication. I mean, I think the mayor's been pretty adamant and consistent that he believes in the vision of the project, and maybe one or two other folks on council may feel that way as well. But this was all about money. Well, I think roads one, two, three, and four are supported anyway. Um, you know, five uh, is a little bit in the fence. Uh, but once you can start getting out into the, the rural suburb areas, you know, the, the benefit here is the investment in our community, the jobs it would create, uh, just the construction alone. But, uh, you know, you have to understand that during the construction of this thing, it's going to be utter chaos because there's heavy equipment running down King Street. No, listen, I've heard all these stories. I mean, oh, I know. <laughs> I only need to talk to some of the merchants, and you've heard most of them on this show over the last couple of years. Yeah, and I've gone through weeks and weeks of debate on this issue, and uh, I thought it was over. I thought we are moving on. But then this, um, this new statement comes out. But the, realistically, 
just judging from some of the comments, and I, I've talked to a, a number of your council colleagues over the last couple of months since that vote happened, and, and they were looking for an opportunity like this and just waiting. And if the current government had said, yeah, you can have the money anyway, I don't think the thing would have passed then. I, you know, I, I'm not going to predict what may or may not have happened. I don't answer hypothetical questions. But I wish it was over. Well, the, sure. the, 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 the Doug Ford promise is a hypothetical, and we are responding to that. Well, it's not hypothetical. Sure he, it is. He, he's leading, well, he's leading in the polls. Yeah. And, and he's made this statement, public statement. So that's not hypothetical. Uh, that's uh, a, a, a fact. Now, whether he can bring it to fruition, we'll see after the provincial election. What do you need to hear? If, if Doug Ford wins on June 7th, what do you need to hear as a city councilor to, to, to assure you that that money's going to come here? Because the minute he says that, and I've already heard from some of my colleagues in other cities say, hey, 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 what about us? I, this is a guy from Etobicoke who's saying to Hamilton, I'm going to give you $1.3 billion. Toronto, you're not going to get it. Ottawa, you're not going to get it. Mississauga, you're not going to get it. I'm going to give it to Hamilton. How realistic is that? <laughs> good question. Yeah, it is. It's a good How question. come nobody else is asking those questions? Well, we got, but, you know, our duty is to represent Hamilton. You know, Brampton will represent Brampton. Toronto will represent Toronto. And it's up to the, the province then to, to determine which way they're going to go. He's made a statement. We're reacting to it. That's all. Well, I just hate to see city council starting to make policy decisions based on campaign promises during an election. Uh, that's 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 pretty thin ice to, to actually try to, to do something like this. And I, think, I think, Bill, that's unfair of you to say that. We haven't started having that discussion. I simply answered a question from a columnist from the Hamilton Spectator. I get it, that, and, I, I, and you've been clear on your position, Lloyd. You it, said you haven't changed your mind. You want to reassess the situation, yeah. and I get that. And, and we I, won't, think, won't I think some of your colleagues are a little more adamant about it, though. Well, you can ask them, but I wouldn't. I, I suspect we won't be having a lot of discussion about this until after the next municipal election, which will make it a hot issue uh, during that campaign. Because by the time, he, if he gets elected, and if the government gets formed, and he gets his cabinet in place, and then they got to bring down a budget. It's a budget where this stuff would be mentioned. That's a ways down the road. And, and so uh, this discussion will happen, I suspect, with the new city council when it gets elected in October. Well, you're going to get an earful of it at the doors. I think every councillor is right up until Election Day in October here in the city anyway. I, I've, I've been getting an earful for a long time with this issue, and I wish it was over. Not yet. Nope. I, we thought it was for a little while, but apparently not. Lloyd, I appreciate your candor, and uh, like I say, thanks for returning the call. Some of your colleagues apparently don't uh, feel as uh, confident, I guess, about their positions as you do, and I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Bill. We'll uh, do the timeout. Uh, your thoughts on this, you can reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com. And on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly, I already responded uh, to a number of these, and I appreciate that. Uh, Casey says, any councillor that changes their decision for the reason Councillor Ferguson State should be voted out. Uh, well, you are the voters, so it'll be up to you to determine exactly what's going to happen. Our election, the municipal election, is not until October, and we'll know what's going to be happening at Queen's Park long before then, obviously, since the provincial election will be happening in June. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Some time ago in the program, we told you that Hamilton is one of the seven cities globally that is competing for the title of Most Intelligent Community. Uh, one of the judges uh, is in town today, and uh, his name is Robert Bell. He is one of the global judges for the Intelligent Communities Forum, and uh, we welcome him to The Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Robert, uh, thanks for joining us on the program today, and welcome to Hamilton. Thank you. I appreciate you arranging some snow for me. <laughs> it looks like a little snow globe out there. It's uh, Well, that's the winter wonderland. And what else would you expect? You're in Canada, eh? 
Exactly. <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about the organization, if we could, Robert. First of all, and then we'll get into some of the specifics about Hamilton, if we could. Uh, the Intelligent Communities Forum. Tell us a little bit about it and what it's all about. We got started, I'm one of the three founders of it, and we got started about 15 years ago um, based on, on a sort of a, one of those epiphanies you have in life. We, all around the world at that time, you could see that some places were doing really well in this emerging economy that had, you know, I don't know, there was a lot of, all of a sudden communications was really important and information technology was important. And other places were just falling apart. They were losing jobs, they were losing industries, and then once that happens, all the other bad things happen in terms of loss of population, you know, declining retail sector, loss of quality of life. And we actually got some uh, a bit of funding from the province of Ontario to do a study, um, a, a comparative study of a bunch of different cities. And from that, we, we identified what we thought was the determining factor, and that was basically it's all being driven by information technology and communications transforming our economy underneath us, right? So suddenly running a, 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 a mill on the other side of the planet isn't that hard anymore. So it was really the beginning of what we now know as globalization, right? And mm-hmm. so today we can look at we can look at this and say, wow, we see the transformation happening. You know, we Facebook is in the news, and we all know why it's changed. Politics has changed. How we communicate has changed everything. But but to so, a, to do the evaluation on on, on and all of the cities, I guess that you've been studying here, Robert. Obviously, you have to start with some set of criteria. In other words, what are you looking for? Uh, some talking points and and boxes to check off. How do you determine that? Well, that actually came out of this original work. Uh, we defined, defined uh, a set of what we call indicators, and they are uh, broadband. Do you have this new infrastructure? You know, you got roads, you may have rails, maybe you've got a port. Do you have the infrastructure of the 21st century, which is going to be you know, carrying the, 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 that cargo that doesn't weigh anything and yet is incredibly valuable called information? Um, we look at your ability to create a, a workforce that can work not just with its hands, but can work with its head. Um, what the, it's called, you know, knowledge workers, and that takes place all up and down the, you know, the different levels from people working in the warehouse to people working in the research lab or the executive suite. And then we look at the ability of the of the community, as we call. It. You know, we we talk about communities, not cities, because we also are interested in counties and and metro regions. Mm-hmm. Their ability to create uh, innovation, uh, and innovation. Uh, there's an economist named Robert Robert Solow who won the Nobel Prize for proving that innovation basically produces 80 percent of all economic growth. So so it's really important. And making something new um, has to take place in the private sector and the public sector. So you put those three things together, and you've got a really dynamic economy. And a dynamic economy means you know jobs and prosperity, um, and it means you know all the things that come out of that in terms of you got money in your community, you can afford to create a good quality of life. But that's only really about half the story. Um, the other half of the story is how you deal with the potential downsides of all this. So one of them is digital equality. As we become better at, at building our own digital economy, we're going to leave more and more people out because they don't have the skills and the knowledge to keep up. So I don't want to live in that kind of society, and I don't think your listeners do either. So intelligent communities work really hard at expanding the, you know, the number of people who can participate in this new world. And we, we ask, yeah, you know, no, I was going to say, that goes into things like retraining, etc., and obviously an educational component. Exactly. I mean, I, the, 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 tough, the tough fact is that, that starting 
about 10 years ago, the only route to success was to constantly improve your skills, you know, and change them and learn new things. Learning has become, has become the new skill. And uh, people who are educationally challenged are really at a disadvantage today. And we, we see it in our, our economy. We see it in our politics. Are we as a, co- a society, not just as a community, but as a society, uh, willing to do that and able? I mean, there's an awful lot of us that for generations, Robert, the mindset was, I'm going to get my education while I'm young. I'm going to graduate or get a certificate or whatever the end game is, go off into the workforce and probably never have to go back to a classroom again. Uh, and, and it seems now that in the 21st century, uh, learning never stops, or it shouldn't anyway, or you're just not going to be competitive. It, that's the that's the raw fact. Your question is, you know, you ask the, the big question: Are we are we willing to do what it takes? And the answer is, well, you know, yes, in some places, no, in others. Uh, my own country, you know, the U.S. is a huge study in contrast in this area, the kind of area I live in, which is the New York metro area. Everybody kind of gets it, even folks. I mean, we've got we've got a big wave, for instance, of of immigration right now coming in from Western Asia, India, Pakistan, and you know, like all immigrants, these people want to work their tails off, you know, and they they get it, they know what's required. But you go to other you know other parts of my country, and no, they they they, they still got the model you're talking about. I managed to get through high school, and that's good enough for me. Well, unfortunately, in this economy, it very unforgiving economy is not going to be good enough for you. Well, and you've heard that. So I'm, you know, as politicians have gone around during election campaigns, you know, I, hey, I lost my job. I don't want to go back to school and get retrained. I'm going to wait for that job to come up again. Well, that's never going to happen. Precisely. I mean, we have right, but you, our steel tariff uh, nonsense in the States is, of course, here in Hamilton has struck a big chord, and it's exactly about, you know, it's trying to preserve the jobs that that uh, we used to have. I mean, one of the... You, I'm sure your reporting up here covered this, right? But in the U.S., mm-hmm. the number of jobs that depend upon access to steel numbers by a factor of 10 or 20, the number of jobs in making steel in our country. So the idea of anything that's going to make steel more expensive is a lose-lose proposition, but it appeals to that nostalgia we all have for when times we thought, in our minds, you know, the past always seemed so wonderful because, after all, we survived and we're here. <laughs> But are we going to continue to thrive and survive? I guess that's the ultimate question. And, and, and it's, a, it's a conundrum because obviously politicians want to get reelected, but at the same time you've got to have somebody in positions of power like that that's got that vision and, and I guess the, the courage to stick to the vision. Yeah, and you know that's, that's, that's tough. It's tough to do, but leadership counts. And one of the things that we look at it just at the, you know, at the community level is leadership. And when you get an effective leader who's got a long-term vision, knows how to translate it into, into you know, victories in the near term so that that politician can remain in power or can get elected to office, uh, and yet never sacrifices that vision of where we're all going. That's, you know, that's what good leadership looks like today. Let's talk about the entry level into this. And, and I guess I want to go back to the, my point about the education system, because I think that's a key to this, is preparing the students of today uh, for this uh, 21st century economy. Uh, in, in many jurisdictions, and certainly in a lot of them in Canada, and I'm sure in the United States as well, Robert, we're still working on a 20th century education model, and I'm not so sure if that's the, the right tool for, for preparing people, as, as opposed to what I see in some other jurisdictions where they're teaching, for instance, uh, coding in, in grade three and four, and so uh, just as much as they're teaching them uh, you know, algebra and math, and uh, that's not happening in a lot of jurisdictions around here. Are we, are we selling our students short by doing that or not doing that? Well, we definitely are, and it's it's the same pattern everywhere. I mean, because because of what I do, I get shown a lot of schools, and of mm-hmm. course, what I'm being shown are the best schools. 
and they're everywhere. I mean, I was last year I was in Moscow because they were in our competition and taken to a couple of high schools that just blew me away in terms of the integration of technology into teaching and into how the school is run, you know, and, and not just a computer in the classroom, but literally changing how we teach and how students learn based upon these technologies that they're going to be using, they're already using and are going to be using every day. But I remember when I was raising my kids and they were going through you know, the public school system in our town, it used to just sometimes amuse me that they would come home and have access to technology that was much, much better than they were going to have access to in school. That model obviously has to change. Because I, I found this to be the case as I've talked to uh, some of the startups that have uh, come out of the innovation factory right across the road from us here in the west end of the city. And, and they're doing well. I mean, you know, the companies are starting to expand and they're starting to enjoy some success. But the common thing I heard from them was, you know what, we, we, we want to expand. We can't find the, the talented and the workforce that, that's here. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, under the old manufacturing system, it was easy. I mean, there was always people that were ready, willing, and able to go and work at Firestone or, or the steel mills or whatever. But I, I don't know that we're actually turning out the people that can work in, in that kind of environment and do that and be skilled at that. I'd like to think we're starting to, but I don't know if we're there yet. Well, I, I don't have any answers. I just know that in the last couple of days here, I've, I've been exposed to your community college, Mohawk. And mm-hmm. i, I got to tell you, I have, I've never seen an institution like this anyplace. Um, their ability to, 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 because they're so closely associated with the business community and with government and hospitals, and you know, they, they got their finger on the pulse of what is going to be in demand next, and they develop you know, coursework. Um, I just we just came from their mobile classroom, which is the, the city schools project on their mobile unit, which is you know bringing education to people and transforming lives. So I think there's as always there's a tremendous amount of wonderful things happening, and most of them are not very visible to us because you know what what makes news uh, bad tragedy and and usually unfortunately tragedy and rumor make news, and we don't see these incredible developments that are that are underlying what's going on and we never see it until all of a sudden everybody notices and, and then it's then, then it's a story so i there's a, wherever i go i i walk away incredibly hopeful for the future because there's a whole bunch of really smart dedicated people some of them elected some of them not who've made it their lives their life work to make the community better one of the things i, I as a lifetime hamiltonian born raised educated here spent most of my life here uh, that I'm very impressed with is is the way that the, this uh, sense of collaboration, and I'll go back to the educational institutions, Mohawk College, McMaster University, and others. I mean, they used to be institutions and stand alone. Mohawk was up there, McMaster was over here, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, collaboration seems to be the key right now, and the Innovation Park's a great example of that. Uh, the mobile classroom that you just talked about with Mohawk College, they're, they're not just those places that were over in that part of the city. They're everywhere in the city right now, and that, that makes a big difference. Everywhere we look, everywhere we go, collaboration is the new competitive advantage. Um, I was speaking with a, this week with a, a colleague of mine in uh, Holland who works for a, an economic development organization, and he, he used this great word. He said, I, we're all used here to working in a network. You know, we, we, don't, we don't kind of have our strategy, put our heads down in March. We're constantly interconnecting with other organizations to, to make sure that what we're doing is absolutely meeting today's requirements, not some vision we have of, of what we think is required. And that's exactly what goes on here. I, I was speaking to a, a group last night, and I just said, one of the things you have in Hamilton is you have world-class connections among, among your uh, community college and your, your university. 
I don't know if you guys know how rare that is, the kind of in-depth collaboration that extends to the fact that McMaster's got a bunch of buildings that are dedicated to joint you know, education with, with your community college. That's, that's incredibly precious, and it extends to your hospitals and your government. And your, it, it's really remarkable, and it's, I think it is actually the engine underneath the transformation that everybody is so proud of here in Hamilton. And i got to tell you, I have heard the phrase, I'm a lifetime Hamiltonian, at least 15 times since I, I landed here uh, a day and a half ago. It's something that people take pride in, which I think is fantastic. Well, and we do, we need to, you know, I think pat ourselves on the back every now and then, at the risk of sounding self-serving, because we, I mean, we're Canadians, so we, I guess we have this inherent, uh, you know, inferiority complex anyway, oftentimes. But, but we need to talk about exactly what's going on here, and you're absolutely right. We've talked about that on the program many times, that uh, those are not just institutions or learning institutions. They're, they're part of the economic fabric and the economic future of the city, and we have some of the top people in the world uh, working at these facilities, whether it's the Automotive Research Center over here or McMaster University and in healthcare research and so many other things. And and I think we need to acknowledge that because I think and then we hear of of, of you know being included in something like uh, the top seven here with uh, the intelligent communities form, and uh, it's in, if nothing else, it's a reassurance I guess that we're on the right track and we we are moving forward. Well, exactly, and that's one of the values I think we provide is uh, we show you other models of other places doing things that are different, but there's a common thread, right? I mean, uh, all the stuff I'm talking about is actually one of our. One of the things we measure, it's called advocacy in our terms, but this basically means taking your people and turning them into the champions of change, right? Because the, the, the people of a community can become the biggest obstacle to change if they're just too afraid to, to move forward, or they can become the champions, and when they do, nothing stands in their way. And that's, what's, that's something that, that when you say that we should be uh, celebrating our successes more, you're actually talking pretty much in intelligent community terms, because when folks understand the components of their success, when they understand their economy is not just a steel mill or not just a hospital, um, when they understand how complex this is and all the pieces that move in it, then they really, as I say, when they really get engaged, you just can't stop them. You just can't stop folks when they really want something and, and uh, are prepared to do what it takes to get it. One of the things that I was impressed about when I first heard about the, this, this, your organization, and of course Hamilton's inclusion in the top seven, uh, was, was that criterion that you're using. You're not looking for the, you know, the most innovative city or the best, you know, the, they've got the best technology. You're, this, is a, this is a big picture thing you're looking at. It's a collaboration. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's what's under the umbrella here. There's so many different things here. You have a broadband deployment workforce. You've talked about innovation. There's so many different elements to this. And it's, it's like a scorecard, and you add that total up at the end. I mean, you know, KW with BlackBerry is, is they're going to say, well, we'll never be like that. Well, you don't have to be. Hamilton can be a, an entity unto itself uh, with its own diversity. And, and I guess that's the kind of evaluation you do as you go around the world. Yeah, our evaluation is based very much not, you know, we don't want to be a, the group that picks the, the city that looks best in a bathing suit. You know, we, what we're interested in is, what are your challenges? How clearly do you understand them, and how effectively are you tackling them to move forward? Um, we've, we've, you know, on our list have been everything from Cape Town, South Africa, you know, which is obviously not at the level of a Hamilton, um, to New York City, right? And the question is, where do you start, and where do you end? You know, where, where, where right now when we look at you, we want to find out what you started with and how you got where you are today. And so Hamilton is a, to kind of a sterling example of that. You started, you had a crisis, uh, the city rallied around it, the leadership 
rallied around it. Um, one of the things I've been imp- really impressed by here is something that I don't know how many people know about, which is your your Hamilton um, Anchor Institutions Leadership, this group of, of leaders who stepped up and say, we care so much about the future that we're going to carve out some time and think strategically about it, and then go out into the world and learn what other places have done right and see what we can't bring home. That's, that's really... Um, unusual, let me put it that way, that's unusual, and yet it's a recipe of success that we see over and over again all around the world. I I was on city council back in the late 1990s, and I remember at the time the mayor of the day tried to get those leaders together, and and they got together one time, and second time they sent their assistance, the third time it was while we're busy. Uh, But that was then and this is now, and that's, again, one of the things I think is very impressive about what's happened is uh, the leadership here, whether it's the, the the business leadership or the political leadership or the community leadership, uh, decided not to sit around and wait for things to get better. They decided to do something about it to make things better. And, and that, that's the, the the kind of initiative, I think, that, that really makes us proud to it, of what we've done here in Hamilton. It should. I mean, the, the bias for action is always, you know, there's always so much you can study something, then you gotta try. you got to try it. One of, the, one of the interesting things that we also see in a lot of communities, and I see it here, is the willingness to try and fail, and it's really, really hard to do that in the uh, nonprofit and the government sector because you know it's all all too easy for somebody to take that failure and throw it in your face, and and really create problems for you. And there's not that much of a reward for winning, right? I mean, what nobody's salary goes up in government when they have a successful program, um, and yet this government and, and its partners have managed to create incentives that I think are mostly just in people's kind of hearts and minds for, for doing something excellent and then also for trying something, seeing it fail and saying, okay, well, we learned something from that. Let's pivot and do the next thing. Uh, that's, that kind of attitude is something that we all have to have uh, in, our, in our governments, in our communities, in our lives. You've just got to be willing to fail or you're never going to advance. Uh, it's exciting times in the city, and it's. And I'm so glad that you had the time to come over here and have a look at it and talk to some of the people around here, Robert. And thank you so much for the time today. It was great talking with you. Well, thank you. It's a privilege. I really appreciate it. Take care. Robert Bell, of course, uh, one of the uh, global judges for the Intelligent Communities Forum, Hamilton being uh, ranked as one of the top seven in the world. Yeah, yeah. It, there are some things happening, some great things happening here in our town. And uh, folks from outside are certainly start, starting to notice that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we've got three elections coming up in the next little while. Clearly, uh, two of them are in the very near future. The provincial election on June 7th in October will go to the polls to elect a new city government. And about a year and a half or so from now, the, the next federal election. Yeah, it's creeping up on us. And uh, we've always talked about who's going to vote in these things and who are the, the voting blocks that the politicians are trying to reach out to. And, and, well, for the last few elections anyway, it's been the aging baby boomers. Uh, they, they, that seemed to be the largest voting block, and it was pretty clear that the political parties tried to gear their policies and their platforms. This is way back in the days when parties used to release platforms, I guess, in elections, uh, towards those people to try to attract those votes. But there is another force that is already starting to form, and those are the millennials. Uh, estimates are there's about 9.5 million voters, those between the ages of 19 and 39, uh, will be on the, the ballot, uh, eligible to vote rather when uh, the federal election comes along. Many of them are still around now and will be voting in the municipal election and the provincial election. Well, interestingly enough, Abacus Data, uh, a polling firm, has been studying these millennials for the last couple of years. Uh, for the uh, last few years, uh, 
David Coletto from Abacus has been studying 2,000 of those as a, as a microcosm of the Canadian millennials. Twice a year he checks in and they do surveys to see exactly what they like and don't like. And it's, it's fascinating to see some of the numbers here. Uh, and you wonder whether or not the political parties are in tune with this and if they can attract those people the millennial vote, and just how much of an influence it's going to have. To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Krista Revelis, Social Science and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, demographically, I guess we are seeing a shift. I mean, we've always talked about the aging baby boomers, and, and I think we've seen how political parties have tried to reflect that in their policies. Uh, what about the power and the strength of the millennials? Is, is it with us now? Is it something that uh, the political parties are aware of? You know, I think they're aware of it. But, you know, I don't think it will ever be as uh, kind of pronounced as the baby boomers because, you know, the baby boomers were, you know, so defining in, in their, 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 the growth of population. The millennial generation isn't quite the boom. But, you know, I think the parties are aware. They're aware of, uh, you know, generational transformation. They're aware of the fact that, you know, as as baby boomers get older, and um, you know, they're, they're they're formed less and less a part of the population. There's also the kind of pre-baby boomer generation that's kind of leaving us, and and now millennials, uh, however you define it, and there's different ways, are are now you know reaching their 30s and becoming more engaged in politics, or are becoming of voting age at the lower end, and, and are now have the potential to be you know directly engaged in our electoral system. Um, you know, the the one challenge could be uh, that. You know, it's still the case that younger people don't vote as much. So while they have a greater potential, there is a chance that, you know, a baby boomer uh, group still has more sway because of the vote density that the average, say, 55-year-old casts versus the average 25-year-old. Is that just a matter of numbers? There aren't as many of them? To a certain degree. But, I, you know, I think some people are saying the next couple elections, again, it, this is all, it, it depends on how you define it. Baby boom, uh, the millennial generation will be the vi- biggest voting block in terms of generations, in terms of how many eligible voters there are. But that doesn't necessarily mean they'll actually cast the most votes from the millennial generation, um, as long as there's a lot of baby boomers still, and as long as, you know, older people still vote, you know, more than young people do. I mean, we've seen evidence of this, uh, even as, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, of course, with uh, some of the marches that, uh, the anti-gun marches that were happening down in the United States. And and I don't know how many speakers I heard, Christo, simply said, we will be voting in the next election, I, I, you know, to send a message to the current administration in the White House that uh, that they are a voice and, and somebody to be reckoned with. And uh, that was, that resonated, I think, with the crowd that was there. But is it really representative of the uh, of the desire of that generation to get involved politically? I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, that's a great point because I've, a lot of people, what they'll say is a counter narrative. Well, young people aren't engaged. Well, young people are engaged sometimes in different ways. Sometimes in their community. Sometimes through things like the the anti uh, the anti gun protests. Sometimes that translates into kind of formal political engagement. Sometimes it doesn't. But you're right. One of the narratives was, and you see signs about it, you see articles, you know, 4 million American children who are children right now will be able to vote in November. And, and depending on, of course, where they are, if they come out to vote, you know, the whole you know, system of you know, first past the post and does their vote matter given where they live in their state and given where they live in, the, in their congressional district, those people, 4 million extra votes, especially if they trend, you know, strong towards the Democrats, which if they do vote, that's almost certainly what will happen, um, could make a big difference 
could flip the House, could flip the Senate, and I think that's certainly important. And the American system, it's interesting because unlike in Canada, they have uh, you know minimum age requirements. So you know this is really the, some of these young leaders. You might expect them to be poached by you know the New Democrats or maybe the Liberals or Greens in the election. But the U.S. federally, at least, you have to be at least in your mid twenties to run for Congress. So I think a lot of these young people will be kind of mobilizing around a, a, a let's use our electoral might, let's use our electoral mass to make change now and then take our leadership roles when we're able to. And we saw that to a certain extent maybe in the last presidential election, or at least the run-up to it anyway, Christo. Uh, that millennial generation gravitated to Bernie Sanders, and it certainly wasn't because he was one of them, but he clearly uh, was, was uh, espousing certain policies that, the, that they seemed to like. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, you know, I think, you know, representation is important. I think, you know, in politics and in public life, uh, I think it's important that, that, that we have a diverse representation. Um, you know, people should have people from their community. So young people should have young people representing them in part. But that's not a hard and fast rule. And the reality is, is that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and, and Bernie Sanders in the United States are, are the opposite of millennials. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of traditional politicians in how they look but not in how they are. And, I, and I've heard one interesting point is that a lot of the younger politicians, the Justin Trudeau generation, even the Hillary Clinton generation to an extent, given that you know, her political kind of might came during you know, her husband's time in a lot of ways, that generation was the neoliberal generation. They, they believed in this idea that, that, that Keynesianism, even social democracy, was unwieldy, that there is no alternative in Margaret Thatcher's language, that, that yeah, even modest social programs had to go, uh, workfare had to go, well, you know, welfare had to go, minimum wages can't go up, and all of that kind of narrative that's driven our, our hard-right politics since the 1970s and has made Canadians poorer than they were in the 1970s, even though Canada is massively richer. But Sanders and Corbyn are both politicians that really started in the 70s and early 80s, and they remember a time when it didn't have to be that way. So in a sense, the baby boomers are trapped in that mentality, perhaps, but the really old guys like Sanders and Corbyn almost speak to the reality that a lot of young people today see and that they, they almost skip over that, that political common sense that was forged by Reagan and Thatcher and Mulroney and Pierre Trudeau and, and those kind of, that, that kind of the expectations are too high era. And I think that's an interesting dynamic that these, these kind of old white guys are tapping into. Let's, let's talk about that contrast, if we could, because they, they did some research, the, uh, the Abacus data folks, about that. Uh, as I mentioned, they tracked them over a period of a number of years and asked them about specific things that were going on. And some of the conclusions here I find fascinating, Christo, and I, I know you've seen some of these. Uh, many of these millennials, uh, uh, 55% have, ac- uh, have access to uh, drug insurance, 53% uh, had dental insurance, uh, 36%, only 36% of them had RRSPs, and only 29% of them actually had uh, an employee-provided pension plan. Uh, those are things that, that the, the baby boom generation seem to be looking at and saying, well, maybe, at least the political leaders among the baby boomers, are saying maybe those things are not necessary, maybe that's not government's responsibility. That's almost the polar opposite of what millennials are looking for. No, certainly. I think, you know, the reality is that things go in waves. And, and the baby boomers' parents, there was a real sense that they remembered the Great Depression. Or if they didn't quite remember it, maybe they were really young, their, their parents remembered it and, and instilled 
add value with them. And the Great Depression taught people that, look, it could be through no fault of your own that you end up starving on the street. And, and this myth of meritocracy, this myth of Canada as a society of equal opportunity was shattered. And it only slowly built up from the 50s and 60s and 70s when, you know, poverty wasn't solved, but Canada took advantage of this once in a kind of, you know, millennia situation of Western Europe being bombed out and the, the developing world not really being ready for outsourcing yet and Canada and the United States being the factory of the world. And, you know, I think a lot of the boomers got these things, maybe not through government, sometimes through their, their workplace pensions. And in a sense, they took those things for granted. And young people today, young people today were born or grew up in a world where those things were under attack. I'm born in 1987, personally. Uh, so, you know, my political consciousness maybe starts in the 2000s. But, you know, my, my childhood was filled of the kind of assault on the welfare state by liberals and conservatives, and even in some cases, some, you know, conservative New Democrats, um, who, have, who have all kind of taken their turns to attack the welfare state. And I think um, you grew up now with a, a generation where uh, even a defined contributions pension is somewhat of a luxury for young people. And I think this is shaping political desires. People don't take things for granted the same way. But but there's going to be a conflict at some point. I mean, if you look at, at the goals and, and, and the aspirations of, of the millennials, according to this survey anyway, uh, they prefer government spending over balanced budgets. And that's, that's, again, totally contrary to what we're hearing from a lot of the politicians that are currently in office or seeking office. It's all about, well, we're going we're gonna to reduce your taxes. We're going to cut this program because that's not government's responsibility. We're going to balance the budget. The millennials seem to be saying, no, 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 no. We want that stuff. And if it costs more, so be it. Now, and that, that's, that's, at some point, those two th- philosophies are going to clash. No, you're right. I, I think you're right. I think in a sense that, that, again, that narrative goes back to the 1980s mentality. It goes back to this time where, you know, there was this feeling that government became too big and too uh, unwieldy in the 60s and 70s and needed to be stomped down by the entrepreneurialism of the private sector. And a lot of baby boomers, frankly, didn't care because their taxes went down and enough of them still had the kind of benefits that their workplace provided so they didn't really need the social safety net. So they discarded the poor, and they discarded the marginalized, and took care of themselves. And what we see now is that their children, and not just 20 30% of them, but as you noted, 60 70% of them don't have pensions in the workplace. A lot of them don't have benefits. A lot of them don't have a secure job. And now the reality is, is that if the private sector won't provide that, we have two choices. We can either legislate them to, or we can have better and more innovative social programs like dental care, like pharmacare, like Andrea Horwath is proposing, um, and, 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 and bring those things in for everyone. And, and that does clash with the, the narrative of low taxes, um, you know, get the government out of your life. And parties are going to have to learn how to deal with that because, because the, the, the narrative isn't there. And if they are worried about fiscal responsibility, which you know I think a lot of people can say is a reasonable point, the reality is, is we haven't explored since uh, enough the, the, the tax increases. I don't think we have. I, I think Canadians right now, the wealthy Canadians especially, pay an astonishingly low tax rate compared to what they did, compared to what they did when Canada was you know, booming in prosperity in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, I think that's where fiscal responsibility has to come from, is a collective understanding that we have to pay for it. And the wealthy in Canada today have such a benefit 
that, you know, if they want companies that don't have to provide pensions, they're going to have to pay the piper down the line somewhere. And that's going to have to come through universal social programs that don't depend on you having a job at a specific place. I mean, this is really a reflection on the economic reality, isn't it? I mean, you know, the boomers, Christo, bemoaning the fact, for instance, that you don't get a job for life anymore, whether, you know, you've got benefits with the job and you know you're going to have that job for 30 or 40 years. They bemoan the fact that, well, a lot of people that are getting hired now, it's on contract, and that, that means no benefits. But the millennials many of whom are just entering the workforce, that's the new normal for them. They, they don't know what happened before. They never, it didn't relate to them. They're just saying, okay, that's the way it's going to be, but I still need those benefits, and I'm going to be looking to government to supply them. Yeah, I think it's a mixture. I think on the one hand, you do have that. You do have this idea that, like, look, they don't remember uh, you know, this, the narrative of people getting a job at 20 and working until 60 and then retiring, um, or, or even you know, the, the more, more kind of middling narrative of Gen X, where it was like, you go to school, you might work a couple different jobs, but every one of those jobs kind of had varying levels of benefits and you retired at 60, 65. But, you know, I think um, it's a mixture. I think they are looking for government to provide those benefits. Again, if, if business, if, you know, if capital wants a system where everything is Uberized or Airbnbized, where they, they can work like that, the reality is people still need that social infrastructure. And again, if, co- if companies aren't going to provide it directly through workplace benefits, it's got to come from somewhere, and it still has to be paid for by corporations, by wealthy individuals, even by upper-middle-class individuals, to, to really take care of that social need. Because again, the need hasn't gone anywhere. But it's also, you know, and this is again why, why people like Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn uh, are, 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 are kind of have this prominence that maybe they never did when they were so, somewhat marginal politicians is that they can tell young people, look, it wasn't always this way and it doesn't have to stay this way. We can bring back some of the good stuff that we had in the 70s and 80s and still keep a lot of the innovations we have for the 21st century. And, and, and I think that that's speaking to a lot of people. So it's a mixture. They want something modern, but they don't want to necessarily discard a lot of the things that the boomers themselves really enjoy. At what point, I mean, we've talked about that, and of course I, the millennials certainly had an influence in, in the Trudeau election a couple of years ago. Uh, if you look at some of the demographics of those who did vote in that federal election, but do they need a champion? Do they need somebody who's, who's going to resonate with them? Uh, is, is that movement big enough right now, or do they need to coalesce around a Sanders or a Corbyn or a Trudeau to actually have their voice heard at that level? You know, I think, I think you know, that, that certainly could help. There hasn't been someone that's captured that yet in Canada. Uh, you know, I think Trudeau certainly benefited from it. Um, I don't think it was the reason he won, but I think it is the reason he won his majority. Mm-hmm. Is the increased turnout from millennials and those millennials going to him kind of disproportionately. Um, but I don't think Trudeau is going to be the one to provide that because I think um, I, I don't think millennials are going to be won over a second time by him. The only real thing he's really given to millennials in a kind of transformative sense is marijuana legalization. Um, but, you know, on things like, like, like electoral reform and things that, that, you know, I don't think he's going to have that again. I think someone like Jagmeet Singh, uh, again, he's not the old man. He's, uh, you know, not, not quite a millennial himself. He's kind of on the edge. He's in his late 30s. I think he could really speak to, to young people and say that, you know, look, it's time for us to lead. You know, Justin Trudeau is not an old man, but he is the grand old man of the three big parties right now, ironically as it is. And I think Jagmeet Singh speaks a little bit more credibly to the, to the millennial experience as someone born, you know, in the last 40 years and, and, and as someone who understands that reality and, 
and as someone who maybe doesn't come from the same privileged background that Justin does and, and, and you know, can, can go on about, about their reality without people like Bill Morneau saying that young people just have to get used to it. That's the narrative of the Liberal Party right now. I think that people are looking for something a little bit different. Uh, a quick uh, text here, uh, actually, on uh, from uh, Sean, who's listening to the conversation, says, uh, listen, I am a millennial. You can raise my taxes, just spend my money on the right things, health care, infrastructure, social programs. Don't spend it on raises and pensions of politicians, ill-advised legal battles and appeals. Interesting, uh, from somebody who identifies as a millennial, listening to our conversation and saying, yeah, this is a different mindset. Uh, and no, it, I- it, it does run contrary to an awful lot of the policy that we hear these days. You know, I think that's a great point. And I think when we use the word fiscal responsibility or, you know, fiscal conservatism even, I think a lot of people associate that with, look, we're going to cut public services, we're going to privatize, we're going to do all of these sorts of things to return things to the private sector. But a lot of times that just ends up costing the taxpayer more, doesn't provide the same service for the same value, you know. Uh, And I think a lot of people are realizing that sometimes the fiscally responsible thing to do is to pay for programs on a universal basis to ensure everyone has access, to have one point of taxation to recover the revenue, and give everyone efficient public services. And I don't think people have any uh, reason to not want an efficient use of their money, and I think that's where politicians have to balance. They have to be able to say to people, look, we need to provide these services. This is a social necessity. Again, businesses aren't doing it anymore, so we have to do it as a group, as a society. But people have the right and, uh, I think, the desire to have their money spent wisely, and I think if parties are willing to provide, you know, accessible social programs that people can benefit from, and not just one age group, not just the under 25s, not just, you know, uh, people who, uh, not, not means tested necessarily, but something that everyone can access, I think people collectively, and maybe millennials more than their parents, will see the social value of those and be willing to pay. Because people want value, whether they're shopping or whether they're voting, they want value for what they're investing. It's uh, interesting data that, that, that we've been talking about here, and certainly the political parties have access to this, too. It's going to be fascinating to see how they respond. Christo, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Christo Avalos from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.